Hey everyone, this is Jake Milwe. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you would ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, looking around, I think most people know me. But for those of you who don't know me, uh, both in person and online, my name is Zach McKeska. I'm a recently appointed elder here at Sweetwater Christian Church, uh, and you're going to be seeing a bit more of the elders this year than you have in past up here on a Sunday morning, as we transition from our previous pastor to whichever one God brings to us, uh, and that we call to accept and move forward with in our spiritual journey. Here at Sweetwater Christian Church, we believe that the Christian life is a journey that we take corporately and individually. More than a decision or a specific event in your life, or even more than a particular belief system in the way that you see the world, we believe that living the Christian life is a journey in pursuit of Christ-likeness. Now, this walking together is it oftentimes not easy because we are asked to live in a manner and with a mindset that may be at odds with the culture that we find ourselves in. And sometimes Jesus tells his followers to do things that are not only counterintuitive, but seemingly unwise or self-destructive. And it is with that ominous context that we read our passage of scripture for today. Today, we're going to be reading from Matthew 9, verses 16 through 30. So for those that wish to follow, it's Matthew 9, 16 through 30. And behold, a man came up to him, him being Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbors as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked to them and said, With man this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you, have, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So in this story, a man with authority and with wealth, great wealth, apparently, comes and asks how to inherit eternal life. Now, 
Eternal life means one thing to us today, but in ancient times, the Jewish people had a particular idea of what eternal life meant. Specifically, it was the life of the age to come. This life was envisioned differently, depending on who you were talking to, but it often resulted in a restoration of paradise and of people living together in peace and joy and justice. Now, his question would be a pretty common question that if you were to approach a religious leader at the time, if you wanted to get a bead on what they thought about how things should be, asking them, what does eternal life mean, would get you pretty far along in that way. And so it was a pretty common question. And Jesus' response of, why do you ask me what is good? There is no one who is good but God alone, uh, was a common response to flattery. So it was seen as like an honorable way to deflect the good teacher. Um, And so it was a common spiritual pattern that you might find when somebody is engaging with someone that they're not familiar with. And then Jesus's answer being the law. This is how you have eternal life. You follow the law is a common way to answer that. He lists most of them coming from the 10 commandments all of them having to deal with how you interact with other people. And then he also includes the love your neighbor as yourself from Leviticus, which is kind of this all-encompassing, you follow this, you follow the law. A common answer. So we have someone approaching that gives a common question in a common religious pattern and receives a common answer from Jesus. But then he asks, what do I still lack? And Jesus answers, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And the man walks away sorrowful. That's not a common answer. It's certainly not what he would expect. It was not uncommon at the time for someone coming as a prospective disciple to be asked something by the spiritual teacher. But Jesus's answer as we could probably agree today, would be considered extreme. And there's two important observations that I want to make about this passage before we we kind of continue on. So the first thing is, for those of you who are astute, which I believe is everyone here, you probably noticed that the scripture reading for today was very similar to the passage that we're talking out of, but not identical. And that's because this story is actually captured in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This event left an impression on the minds of his followers. So much so that three out of the four people that we believe as a church, that we believe best captured Jesus's life and teaching, chose to include this story, which means that we should take it seriously if we in turn are serious about following Christ. And the second is that while this does seem harsh, It is perfectly on brand. Time and again, Jesus starts out with one understanding of the law, with one way to understand God's desires for his people, one way for those that that describes how those that follow him should behave, and then he changes it. He flips it on its head, often in provocative ways. And this is clearly seen in Luke chapter 9, when people show up wanting to become his disciples And he shoots them down, seemingly left and right. So I'm going to read from Luke 9, 
This is chapter 50, or chapter 50, Luke chapter 9, verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But the man that he asked to follow him or told to follow him said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Woo. Jesus is harsh. Jesus doesn't ask everyone that he encounters that want to follow him to sell all they have and give it to the poor. And I say that with a fair amount of confidence because if he did that, I think we would see it a lot more in scripture. Okay? But as we see in Luke 9, as well as in our passage for today and other passages, Jesus does expect those that follow him to put him first before everything else. I want to follow you. It'll mean you become homeless. I want eternal life. It will mean that you cannot follow important social conventions. I want to be your disciple. It will mean that your family shuns you. What must I do to have eternal life? It will mean giving up your wealth to those in need. And if I'm being honest, this story strikes me nearly as hard as it probably did that man back in ancient times. And the reason why is that out of almost anyone in the Bible, objectively, I can identify with this young man. I don't have a lot of wealth uh, by Sugarland standards, but I have more than most people in America, and certainly more than most people in the world. I want eternal life, and I seek it. And in fact, I come to Jesus for the answers, just like this man. And I know the law. I I know in general what's right and what's wrong, and I attempt to follow it as best I can, just like this man. And it keeps me up at night, because what would Jesus look at me and say, but one thing you lack. And then he tells me that thing that I might cling to more than my desire and devotion for him. As I was preparing for this sermon, I was reminded of a story that takes place in Durham, North Carolina in 1970. So in 1964, the federal government ordered desegregation of schools throughout the United States. But it wasn't until 1970 when a district court ruling came through that desegregation came to the small city of Durham, North Carolina. And the local city council decided that they were going to have a series of meetings where citizens could come and express their concerns uh, as desegregation progressed, and they wanted two people to set the agendas for these meetings. And they picked two people that could not be more different. 
two people that hated each other. They picked C.P. Ellis and Ann Atwater. These were two people that had encountered each other before these meetings, and both of which had, are recorded to have expressed a desire to kill the other person. They hated each other. C.P. Ellis was the grand cyclops of the local chapter of the Ku Klux Klan. He was well known in town for his racist rants and for leading white townspeople in revolt against the changes that the civil rights movement was bringing. Anne Atwater was a black woman who was very, with a high amount of community engagement. At first, both of them were hesitant to adopt this role as they knew there was going to be a lot of conflict. Um, but ultimately, they decided to accept it, and so they came to these meetings ready for a showdown. But instead, they were surprised. Ellis was shocked to hear the same fears from black mothers about their children's futures as he had heard from white mothers talking about their own children. Both of them were surprised to hear that there were people attending these meetings that had children, both white and black, that were attending er, underperforming and under-resourced schools. And that they were both amazed to discover that poverty drew their concerns together. After 10 days of meetings, both Anne and CP were changed. They actually became friends. And as CP stood before this gathered crowd, as they presented their official report, he took out his clan card, and he tore it to pieces. And he said, if schools are going to be better with me tearing up this card, I will do so. And their friendship persisted for the next 30 years. This is an incredible story of how a powerful transformation is possible when we set up the right terms and we open ourselves up to relationships. But Ellis's transformation into a worldview that is more Christ-like came at a price. Ellis was shunned from every future family reunion. He lost his job. He no longer fit in at his church, which continued to oppose desegregation. He no longer fit in with his community, and he was no longer looked to as a leader. He had to uproot himself from his community, his friends, his work, and his family. So, I don't believe that if C.P. Ellis were to approach Jesus and ask, what do I still lack? That Jesus would look at him and say, I want you to sell all that you have and give it to the poor. He might have said, I need you to give up your ideology of supremacy, which will cost you your community. Then come and follow me. Now, the story doesn't end there. We're going to come back to it. But neither does our passage. I'm going to reread the end of that passage in the book of Mark, which you heard earlier in the scripture reading, because it communicates the idea that I, I, I want to get across, in my opinion, most clearly. So this is picking it up in verse 29 of chapter 10. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, 
who will not receive a hundredfold now in this present time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come, eternal life, that many who are first will be last and the last first. In this passage, Jesus says that those who lose their home or their family or their work because they were following Jesus is going to receive a hundredfold as much in this life. And that hundredfold is not a mathematical equation. It's a, it's a communication of an exponential, overwhelming return of what was given. And I believe that how this could possibly be fulfilled is the church. The church is supposed to be a community that cares for each other, that shares its burdens, and is most readily recognizable because of its love for one another. If Jesus calls you to adopt a lifestyle that causes your family to shun you, then there is a church member out there that says, come join me at my table for the holidays. And if Jesus calls you to serve in the mission field or in a nonprofit, then there's a church community out there that says, I'll be your 401k. You need a place to stay? Come to my house. You need some food? Take from my pantry. When C.P. Ellis died in the early 2000s, Ann Atwater was the first person at his funeral. And she sat down in the front, and someone approached her and said, Ma'am, this is reserved for family. And she looked at him and said, Yes, I am his sister. Whatever you give up to follow Jesus that much closer will bring blessings to your life. And it may be difficult. It may have a price. It may even cause your family, those you love, to reject you. But it will bring you closer to that eternal life that we're striving to move forward towards. It will bring you that much closer towards Christ-likeness. So there are two things that I hope that you do after hearing today's message. So the first is I want to encourage you as individuals to try and consider what it is that you may be lacking in your spiritual life. I really appreciate Mark's rendition of the story because it highlights Jesus's love. In Mark's version, the man doesn't ask Jesus, what do I lack? But instead, Jesus looks at the man and loves him, then says, one thing you lack. I don't think that Jesus made or makes demands of those who follow him because he doesn't want us to enjoy our life, but instead for us to see the joy that's available in the life that God wants for his people. Sometimes it requires a colossal shift in our thinking to set aside your current understanding of how the world works, of how it should work, in order to live in the life that Jesus would have us live in. And I, too, don't ask you to consider these things because I want to make you depressed or feel inadequate. I ask you because I believe that the more Christ-like you become, the better your life will be. And in particular... If you're bold enough, I encourage everyone to ask God to reveal what it is that you're lacking, and then listen. And I say that if you're bold enough, because 
In my experience, the answer God gives you to those kinds of questions are often the most unexpected, the most costly, and the most rewarding. And the second thing that I hope you take away from this, I, I hope that we can be a church community that supports each other in such a way that we would not shy away from following the Christ. Many people come here, uh, they, they've communicated that they really enjoy this communal atmosphere that we have here. That many people feel like this is, this is kind of their second family. And I want us to lean into that identity and even increase it. I would, I would love for this to be a community where people share their burdens because they know that people, or excuse me, that they'll, they'll voice each other's burdens because they know that people are going to share it, that they're going to take it on. A community where we perform the actions that are expected of family members in Sugarland, Texas, where we, we're there for you in your time of need, that we're contacting you, asking if everything's okay, and celebrating your triumphs. I hope that this can be a community where we work together, aiding and being encouraged by one another as we continue our journey towards that eternal life. Please pray with me. Father, we are a blessed people. In so many ways, God, one of those ways is with your love, from you and also our love for each other, God, but you also give us a calling. As you have provided the hope to us, Lord, we are supposed to bring hope to the hopeless. As you are a light in our life, pushing away the darkness, we are supposed to be the light in others' lives, God. Father, I ask that today that we would simply be your people, that we would strive to be little Christ's and all the areas that we have influence. And that if we have need of anything, Lord, that you would not feel isolated or alone, but that we would feel welcome and encouraged to lean in on our church community, to see your kingdom brought here to Sugarland and the world. Amen.